Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? Doing pretty well. I'm happy the legislative session is over, if I'm being honest. Um, and also happy that it is still Pride Month. This will be our last episode for Pride Month. And unfortunately, we couldn't put together a special because thanks legislative session. But taking the last opportunity to wish, wish everybody a happy Pride. And it was a pretty good Pride Month in terms of uh, the Supreme Court decision provided some some much needed protections for for employees, right? Yeah, and the Georgia hate crimes bill, which we'll definitely get into. Uh, also joining us on today's podcast is Luke Box. Luke, how are you? Oh, you know, doing as good as one can do in these circumstances. So on today's podcast, we are going to do our annual The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, a recap of the 2020 legislative session. We are recording on Sunday, a couple days after Sine Die. After the conclusion of what is probably the wildest, most unique legislative session, maybe that the legislature has ever had, certainly in the modern era of things, this was a legislative session that got delayed by the COVID crisis. They they went out of session in March and came back to a legislative environment and an environment for the budget that was completely different than what was planned for early in session. Um, so we are going to dive into you know some of the big things that came out of session, the passage of the hate crimes bill, like Megan mentioned, the passage of the budget, the one constitutional obligation of the legislature, and then some of the other uh, smaller items that were on the table in the last few days of the legislative session. Uh, but before we get into some of the individual things that happened here at the end, how about some general takeaways from y'all? from just what a what a wild session it was, something super unique for the history of the legislature, but something perfectly befitting of the year 2020. Megan, what did you think of, of this crazy session? I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth, Kyle. Befitting of the year 2020. 2020 has been a shit show. The session was a shit show, not necessarily because of some of the things that passed, although definitely sort of because of that, which again, we will get into. But can this year get any weirder? I really hope the answer is no. I mean, it just makes me worry. We have like a very significant election this fall, and the precedent of everything that has happened this year has been to be super weird. So, you know, hopefully things calm down. Luke, any other big takeaways from you for this year's session? Yeah, I think uh, my my biggest takeaway is just how we all talked about our expectations of this being a sleepy session, a session where very little would happen. And I feel like that was true for the first half of the session. But when they came back, a lot of things happened, both expected and unexpected. And I think that um, really just highlights the crazy political time we're in. And most of what we're going to talk about is getting into those things that I would you know, consider to be uh, expected, unexpected and interesting uh, of this session. But for how crazy the session was. I was kind of surprised by um, how much activity there was on certain things. And also, I think it highlights just the the cost of having the current majority that we do in the current legislature that we do that for for everything that we did do this session, some good, some bad and some ugly, of course, uh, everything was reactive rather than 
proscriptive of pushing forward of like showing how Georgia could, you know, lead the nation and trying to get on top of some of these things. Pretty much everything we did was just a reaction to the political environment, to the health environment. And um, that lack of willingness to go further than the obvious solutions uh, or obvious, uh, I don't even want to call it solutions because especially on the budget, it um, was the path of, of least work. I wouldn't even say least resistance, but just least work. Um, and, and that's disappointing, but we'll get more into that later. Yeah. I had that same takeaway too, Luke, that, you know, when you think about the governor, you know, we live in a state where we have a really powerful governor and it does feel like governors oftentimes set the agenda that a legislature is responding to. You know, when you think about governor deal, criminal justice reforms were a big part of his legacy. And one thing that I think has happened amidst the current environment is we are in some ways a bit back in a situation similar to right after the Great Recession, where all the legislature and the governor can do is react to the events of the world. And so you lose the thread a little bit of what policymakers' priorities are because they don't you know, necessarily have the opportunity to get those done or the environment that they're facing is very different than the one they anticipated. Uh, but the one Let's start here with with the passage of the hate crimes bill. This is uh, a a change in the legislative environment that definitely fits the bill of the legislature reacting to the events of the world. The legislature did pass a hate crimes bill this session. It is legislation that provides enhanced criminal penalties for people who target other people based on their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, their national origin, their religion, or a physical or mental health disability. Um, but this this is a discussion that the state has been having since the early 2000s when Georgia previously passed a hate crimes bill, and it was a statute that was struck down by the Georgia Supreme Court for being unconstitutionally vague. And then the legislature sort of off and on returned to this discussion, but was very resistant to the idea of passing a hate crimes bill prior to the return of the legislature to this ending of the 2020 session following the murder of Ahmad Arbery in Brunswick. Megan, give us sort of your, your 30,000 foot view of the importance of the passage of the hate crimes bill in Georgia, uh, what it means and, and, and what you take away from this debate that was just had in the legislature. Well, it is certainly super important. Um, you know, kind of, as you set up Kyle, before this was passed, we were one of four states who didn't have one. Thankfully we are not on that list anymore. Um, and that does a lot for, uh, Georgians who are in protected classes who would have, you know, hate crimes committed against them. I, I think that this, the passage of this bill is definitely bittersweet in the sense that I think there are a lot more things that it could have done. Um, and as we saw it completely stall out for a large portion of um, the session, as we saw a lot of things, um, you know, not get added to it or that got removed from it that could have really helped strengthen the bill. But I also think that it is very sweet in the sense that it's it's a really good starting point. It's it's more than the nothing we had before. Um, it is not what I would consider constitutionally vague, so it should hold up. 
as well as we were able to dodge a couple of bullets uh, related to it uh, regarding some things that Republican senators tried to add and could not. Yeah, Luke, the the political discussion around this bill was very fraught. When we came back into the conclusion of this session, House Speaker David Ralston and the proponents of the bill in the House were arguing that the Senate should just pass the House bill. Uh, That is not initially what happened. Entering the end of this session, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan went on this big national media tour talking about how he did not want to be the backer of the weakest hate crimes bill in the entire country. He introduced his own proposal um, that had some, I think, sort of positive additions like data collection, but also wanted to provide protection to people who were targeted based on culture. You know, I that sort of, to me, started to walk right up to the line of unconstitutionally vague. Um, ultimately, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, his proposal is not really what moved forward in the legislature. Instead, the debate focused on the House bill with some positive additions like data collection, but with this very fraught amendment added in committee for police to be a protected class along with other first responders. You know, that was sort of immediately described as a poison pill to the bill. We'll talk about you know, how that got separated out and how that got concluded. But what do you think about sort of the political route that was taken to get this bill done? Well, the first thing I would say is that I think it's important to note that the House had passed a hate crimes bill before all this happened, you know, and that this is not something that like a bunch of people in Georgia, you know, uh, Fairly, a fair number of Republicans, including the House Speaker David Ralston, had won a hate crimes bill prior to the recent outcry. And I think they deserve credit for it in the same way that the people who voted in the House in 2019 for a hate crimes bill, but uh, voted against it in 2019 and now be due to political expediency have changed their tune. I, I think, you know, should, those folks should be noted. The the second part of this is about, you know, everything that happened in the Senate. Um, I, I tend to joke, especially in Georgia, but it's true of almost every Senate is, you know, the Senate is where good bills go to die or to get ruined. Um, and so the Senate had to play its customary role in screwing up a good bill for a while. Uh, and I'm happy for the most part, they, uh, you know, the the more negative parts of the bill that they added were taken out and put into a different legislative vehicle or completely taken away. And as you mentioned, a couple of the good additions remained and uh, ended up on the governor's desk and, you know, happy to see that Kemp uh, did not waste any time and signed that very quickly. Uh, so that, you know, that anxiety is is over and is true that we are now off that list. And um, I'm happy to be off that list in any capacity, but I'm happy that the bill we got was still fairly substantive and, you know, we'll, we'll push the ball forward. I think What's really highlighted for me in this is just, again, what I was saying at the beginning of our discussion, I know this is in the good section, and so maybe bringing it into the bad and ugly thoughts uh, is inappropriate, but it's just there's so much more we could have done. There's so many more obvious things we could have done, like you know dealing with citizens' arrest, like dealing with stand your ground, and the fact that those discussions were not even had is really frustrating to me, because while the hate crimes 
uh, you know, legislation was desperately needed and addresses a lot of problems that, you know, to be frank, are probably more commonplace than the citizen's arrest statute and the stand your ground statute because the hate crimes legislation will address things that are more everyday experiences and while the hate crimes and citizens arrest is going to deal with the big horrible tragedies um what i'm getting at is i'm worried that you know come 2021 if we have the same legislature or similar legislature or even if we have a democratic house that it will be hard to push those things forward, to push those other measures forward, because there'll be a lot of people who will just feel in the legislature that's like we we've done this already. That's old news. That's 2020, you know, problems. We we want to do other things now, and I'm worried that that will be the legacy of this hate crimes bill. That it was the end of the discussion rather than a beginning of it. One. Yes. Well, uh, that's definitely a concern, but I can guarantee you, as a caucus leader with a caucus that tends to be pretty heavily affected by by a hate crimes bill, we plan not to let that happen. Um, we're already gearing up for the, you know, kind of like the next step in the discussions and making sure that this is not the end of the story, but rather is the beginning of the story to make Georgia a more equitable place for folks who are largely affected by hate crimes bills. Where do y'all hope that that discussion goes next? I mean, we talked about the agenda on policing reforms that Georgia Democrats put it the put into the discussion, but there was very limited discussion on that. I think Luke's concerns are very valid that the momentum for that could be gone. You know, ten. You know, we won't come back in this not ten months because we <laughs> we're ending session in June, not in March. But we won't come back into session for another seven or eight months um, until early twenty twenty one. What discussion, Megan, in in your work in 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 the things that groups like yours are focused on, what discussion do you hope gets returned to? Definitely the police reform related items for sure. Um, the unfortunate thing is that despite our hopes and wishes that we will see a more equitable, fair Georgia, what we are seeing, and I'm sure we will get into in a moment, is the opposite when it comes to law enforcement and the powers that they have. Um, So one of the things that was heavily discussed was qualified immunity and whether that should remain, um, as well as other issues. And it's, it's a little bit confusing to folks, I think, when hate crimes and policing reforms are talked about in this at the same time, because I think a lot of people want to believe the best of our law enforcement and tend to disassociate those things. They think hate crimes are about crimes committed on citizens, by citizens, whereas a strong hate crimes bill could protect citizens from the police. And both the LGBTQ community and the Black community have histories of being targeted by police, especially uh, with overuse of force and, and things like that. So that's definitely one of the discussions that we're going to continue having. And based on the world we live in and the things that we've continued to see happen and the fact that we have an election coming up that includes an extreme racist Yahoo who's currently sitting in the White House, I think that it will be easy to make sure that we do not forget the issues that we have experienced um, in the past few months of 2020 and in the past hundreds of years. So as was alluded to, the passage of the hate crimes bill befitting of the Republicans who run the General Assembly, the passage of that bill came with a price. And that price was greater legal protections for police, 
Uh, initially, in committee, uh, there was an effort to attach protections for police that would list police and other first responders like firefighters or paramedics as a protected class and that sort of the same criminal penalties for committing a hate crime against other protected classes would apply for would apply to those uh, committed against first responders those two provisions kind of by political necessity and after the outcry of activists and of democrats those two provisions were separated but the house and the senate did pass house bill 838 which results in anyone who commits a crime against the same group of first responders uh, that they would face between one and five years in prison and a fine of up to $5,000. They would also allow first responders to sue anyone who files a false complaint against them. Um, There is some interesting uh, back and forth about whether or not the stronger protections will actually stand up in a situation where one of these crimes goes through a trial. Um, and, and we can get to that in a second. But on the larger question of this being the price that supporters of hate crimes legislation had to pay to get this done in the General Assembly, what did y'all think of these two issues being tied together, particularly at this moment when the momentum that sort of helped push the hate crimes bill across the finish line was a bunch of activism that was opposing police brutality. So, Cal, the first thing I would say is I, I would disagree with your framing because I don't I don't see this as something that the activist who pushed for the hate crimes bill, who pushed for more as being forced to sign something because this was removed from the bill because it was so poisonous that I mean there was definitely some there was some time during session where it was unclear if this would pass, that if the hate crimes bill had these protections for first responders within it, that that would be viable. And so it was forced to be taken out and put into a different bill. That is a move of weakness, not strength in a legislature. And so on, on that on that front, you know, Democrats and the supporters of, you know, sane protections had the opportunity to vote for a clean hate crimes bill and vote against these misguided protections because now to the actual substance like this just just it's bad law it's stupid law i don't know when it's ever going to be you know applied for someone because you know how how protected class protections work is like you have to be doing something against that protected class because they are that protected class and so it's not just that like you commit a crime against a first responder, but you do it because they are a first responder, which is not an easy thing to prove, uh, you know, in, in many cases. So I, I just suspect that there will be a lot of, if this law, you know, Kemp hasn't signed it yet, he's probably going to sign it. But um, so assuming this does become law, I just suspect that there will be a lot of very strange case law that comes out uh, about this because the factual patterns that would be required for this to actually be a thing uh, will, will be pretty bizarre, in my opinion. Um, so that that remains to be seen. And I think, if anything, going back to our earlier discussions, not today, but of other days, of like why hate crimes bills are important, and what I had always said is that, you know, your, your statutes, your laws are a are a value statement in a lot of times. And what this is saying is basically to all of the 
um, protesters and the people who are clearly articulating the truth, which is that the uh, current arrangement between police and society is uh, not acceptable and that we have to reform at the very least reform uh, how police works in the United States, but especially in Georgia. And, and this is basically just a big slap in the face to everyone who's saying that and saying like, no, we think we think police are having uh, too hard of a time right now and that we think they are the ones who uh, need more protections, not the the people that they are supposed to be serving. And so on, on that front, I I think symbolically, this is a very poor political move. And I think um, I just don't see the logic in it. I agree. I don't see the logic either. Just real quick on the on the framing, my understanding from reporters of the Capitol was that there was sort of an unspoken agreement among Republicans in the Senate that they were only going to back a hate crimes bill if their police protections that they put into a different bill were passed in the House. And I don't, you know, I don't think that there was any instance of anybody trying to call Senate Republicans bluff on that. Um, I think everybody kind of wanted to get it done. But I think by sort of separating the two, you muddy the waters a little bit by giving Republicans the opportunity to say that they took action to protect police officers in this very session. They would probably use the framing after these demonstrators put all this pressure and targeting on police. Um, but that these two, even though that they were separated, that they were not entirely severed from each other in the discussion. Um, right. Well, they weren't, the, they weren't okay. even entirely severed from each other in votes. House Bill 838 came up right before House Bill 426. So it was very clear that the outcome of 838 uh, or I'm sorry, it was very clear that the outcome of 426 was contingent upon the outcome of 838. And I think there was a little bit of looking across the hall between the House and the Senate, the Senate waiting for the House to pass 838. Like, you know, I know they were they were going on at the exact same time, but I think that there was some looking across the hall as this happened. Oh, and uh, I, I definitely agree that that was happening. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I am a supporter of the hate crimes bill. I did not have to give up and none of the activists had to give up supporting the police protections publicly. And so that, it, you know, sure, some legislators, especially Republican legislators, I'm sure made some sacrifices. Um, and, you know, the, for the people who did that hard work to get the hate crimes bill passed, you know, they deserve recognition for that. But my greater point was it's not as if everyone who was supporting a hate crimes bill had to come out and now act like they support this, uh, which they do not. Yeah. On the, um, some of the technical issues with this bill there, it was raised by the Georgia ACLU that there is a, uh, a legal theory called the rule of lenity that requires when people are charged with crimes, if there are crimes covering sort of the same conduct but result in varying degrees of severity of consequences that uh, the the courts are forced to pursue the charge that is most favorable to the defendant. Um, the example given in this case is that somebody who murders a police officer under the law prior to the passage of HB 838, that is a that is a crime that is eligible for the death penalty, but certainly even uh, 
lesser than that life in prison or or very severe prison sentences, um, the same conduct, if you buy into this legal theory, uh, could only be subject to a maximum of five years in prison and a five thousand dollar fine under HB eight thirty eight. Um, you know, this was sort of thrown out there late in session. I, you know, I. I sort of question how much this would hold up in the event that somebody actually murders a police officer, that they somebody would actually get out of a trial with only five years in prison. Um, so we would have to see if that was the case. But the, the possibility, as this was raised by the Georgia ACLU, got Jesse Stone, uh, who chairs the Senate committee that was considering all of this legislation, to say that it was something worth looking further into um, so it seemed to have some unintended, potentially unintended consequences, but it also, I think, signals to the sloppiness of throwing these provisions in at the last minute uh, to make a political point. Yeah, and that, and that's why I was saying that, that you know I consider this to be bad law um, because it just is something that, at least in my knowledge, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know of any other state that has these protections in place and that treat first responders as a protected class. Maybe I, that's just my ignorance, but I don't think there are any others. And so I I just imagine that this is going to be a problem going forward, either for just like courts to figure out or for prosecutors to know when they should bring these charges or not. And, you know, just trying to make this work is going to be difficult. And and I just (laughs) would rather we just avoid it and not do it. Well, just from my perspective, this is piss poor legislation, not just for the reasons that y'all just discussed, but some of the other wording in this bill is all over the place. Um, Did y'all read the language that says, quote, perceived employment as a first responder? Like that is so up for interpretation. It's ridiculous. This could mean that bouncers or someone convincingly dressed like a first responder. Hello, Dragon Con. Um, that that all of this could be used to leverage the law to their advantage. The other thing to note is that Georgia allows police officers to go, I believe, in uniform to jobs where they are not actually on the clock. So as a bouncer or as security. So in that moment, they are perceived to be police officers and yet they're bouncers. And I understand that like the law is written to protect them for that, but I don't think that's fair. The other thing is, like, this, the amendment, the addition of the uh, sections, this amendment was a blatant attempt by Republican senators to undermine the efforts related to the hate crimes bill. And I am incensed about it. I just want to make sure that I am abundantly clear that as someone who has a caucus that is affected by this bill, I am incensed. And I think that it is a slap in the face to Georgians who are affected by this, that Republican senators decided to jam this in here. You know, they removed it from 426 to make that bill actually do what it needs to do, and then jammed it onto a bill that's only purpose was literally to rename an office. Um, The office that it renamed was the Office of Public Safety Safety Officers Report, which is within the Department of Public Safety, and it renamed it to the, quote, Office of Public Safety Support, end quote. So it just dropped the officer bit. That's all this bill was supposed to do. They jammed it in here to make sure it got through. It is piss poor legislation. It is poorly written. There are all kinds of unintended consequences because Republican senators were worried about their images about needing to support police officers in a time where police officers are actually doing more harm than good. 
So I'm going to get off my soapbox now, but I am incensed and I wanted to make sure that that is abundantly clear on this podcast, that this move by Republican legislators is uncalled for. Well, continuing along in the vein in the vein of the bad things that the legislature did, uh, the legislature this week adopted a budget that cut $2.2 billion total from the place where we thought we would be at the beginning of the year before the pandemic. Uh, these cuts included nearly a billion dollars to the QBE funding for education funding in our state. They cut $25 million from school counselors, nearly $250 million from the university system, nearly $40 million from the technical college system. They cut $91 million from the Department of Behavioral Health and Disabilities, which is the department that serves some of the most vulnerable people in our state dealing with disabilities or people in mental health crisis or other people who don't get the kind of healthcare services they need by being uh, insured. The legislature's hand here in some ways is obviously forced by the state of the economy. Um, you know, the economy ground to a halt early in the spring, which really significantly reduced sales tax revenue. Uh, millions of people lost their jobs. So that obviously uh, puts downward pressure on income tax revenue, two major revenue sources for the state. The state obviously had to react to those things. It, it wasn't just something that could be ignored. But the way the legislature came down on the budget this session was to make cuts that were about the same in size as the cuts were made at the beginning of the Great Recession without making any substantive effort to pursue policies that would increase state revenue, whether it was an increase in the cigarette tax, a cutback on some of the corporate tax exemptions that have been into, been put into place in recent years, uh, the elimination of a tax policy called the double deduction that that is fairly costly for the state, or even, and I never saw this discussed by anyone, but you know, you could have made a pretty good case that there was a reason to roll back some of the income tax cuts that have been put into place in recent years, at least maybe roll them back for people with really high incomes as a way to claw back some of that revenue and mitigate some of the cuts you had to do to state services, many of which vulnerable people in our state rely on. What was y'all's takeaway by that approach to the budget, by putting the entirety of paying for this recession on the backs of state services without making any effort to find revenue uh, to offset those cuts? It is the cost of electing people who, as we've previously mentioned, as Kemp said, are excited by the prospect of doing more with less, which really just means doing less with less. Yeah. Um, they, they're just, this is just, it's one of those things you're just you're asking you're asking a bird to swim, you're asking a fish to fly. Like Republicans are not going to just like wake up and think that, you know, in any circumstance that they should find more revenue sources. It just isn't going to happen uh at any time and asking them to do differently is just asking for failure and that's why I've been, you know, so frustrated because this is this is the test case. If there's ever a test case for you know, will Republicans ever accept new revenue uh, beyond like just completely lost revenue in the sense of like internet sales um, because they do like sales taxes because they are a little regressive. 
It's just like if there is a scenario more built for increasing the cigarette tax where you literally are facing a pandemic that is a respiratory pandemic and that cigarette smoking, it, you know, while not directly linked, probably makes it worse. Uh, you know, I feel like this would be the time to to raise that tax. It's a very low low, 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 low tax in the state of Georgia, and they couldn't even do that. They did do a vaping tax, so I feel like if they were going to ever raise the cigarette tax, like, this was the time they were going to do it, and so this has just proven to me that they will never do it. And so, there's also, there, that's the revenue side. So let's just put a pin in that and, you know, put it to the side, because that that is the, that's the side that you can expect Republicans to be shitty on. <laughs> like, you know, they're always bad on that. They're never going to want to raise taxes on anything. There were so many other options for things they could have cut, for even good faith conservative arguments could be made for stopping picking wingers and losers with all the you know plethora of tax breaks that they uh, have out for various industries they could have you know chosen to to reduce the amount of tax breaks you could get for contributing to funds that go to private schools they could have reduced it even a little bit. They could have just like said, you know what? We're asking more of the public schools. We can ask more of the private schools. But no, what they did was they used this as an opportunity to promote their ideology, which is their ideology is that public services are bad because government is bad. And so if we have to, if we're in a situation where we have to cut money from something, we want to cut money from something that we think is bad rather than making things that we like, like making our rich friends more money through tax breaks or making it easier for people to go to private school, we're not going to touch those things because those are politically important to us and ideologically important. We're not going to ask any pain from those entities. We're only going to hurt the entities we don't like, which are the public ones. Yeah, I found the cuts to education particularly frustrating given that for more than a decade, Following the Great Recession, Republican leadership underfunded the the QBE, the education funding formula, and Democrats every year talked about the need to fully invest in education and how we were shorting our students. And then in 2018, an election year, in, in Governor Deal's final legislative session, they finally got around to fully funding QBE, and both Deal and then Kemp made a big deal for two years about fully funding QBE, about supporting teachers. You know, one of Kemp's signature policy pushes last year and in the beginning of session this year was a pay raise for teachers. All of that was done when the economy was good. And the moment that the economy was not ideal, all of that commitment. uh, I was going to say, as some would say, Cal, the best economy ever. Well, and then when it wasn't the best economy ever anymore... (laughs) the commitment to education disappeared like that. It was just gone immediately. Yeah, and and, and there is one thing I want to be fair about. I really do. Like, they faced an unparalleled economic crisis. That is undeniably true. I don't think there is any way they could have left the legislature without cutting some money to education. 
So I give them a pass that they had to cut some money to education because education, as they will very likely tell you, is the largest part of the budget. And it is by a pretty big chunk. So, I, you know, I give them a pass that they had to cut something. It's just the fact that they just basically said, well, we have to cut a bunch of money. Education is the biggest part of money. Let's just cut a bunch of education money. And because there were just so many other things that they could have passed. And, and, and this comes into my initial criticism of like what my feeling about this you know legislative session part two uh was is that they just basically did the easiest thing possible which is they took the largest you know pool of money and cut a bunch from it rather than trying to do their jobs and do a hard task of like looking at all the tax deductions that we have and all the things that either bring money into the state or take money out from the state and trying to be a little bit more surgical with their decision making rather than just taking a cleaver to a very important part of the budget you know there's a reason education is the biggest part of the budget and there's a reason we put all this money in and it's because it's really really important and you know is the tax break for cruise ships or uh, what was it yachts yeah yeah yachts <laughs> so yeah so it's like is the tax break for yacht repairmen like equally important as education no, like, would I, be, you know, like, would it be bad if less people are working as yacht repairmen right now if we got rid of that tax deduction? Yeah, it would be bad, but would it be as equally bad as us having like less teachers or having less prepared teachers? Right. It's just, it's just, it's not hard <laughs> to make these arguments and to go through these this thought process. And it's not like that they, you know, didn't know this was happening. Like, they had budget meetings <laughs> before session came back. They they thought about it, and this is the best they could do. And to me, that's just unforgivable. Because, again, it's not that they cut money from education. This is a terrible, terrible budget situation. I'm sure every state in the union has had to do it. It's just the fact that that's basically the only idea they had, which is, you know, condemnable in my mind. Every opportunity they had to find additional revenue, uh, with the exception of applying online sales taxes, they took a pass and cut education funding. And you're going to hear, vaping, which is and vaping. Although vaping doesn't bring in very much money at all, it sounded like y'all should have heard the conversations that were happening when they were discussing the vaping bill. It was hysterical. <laughs> what? I actually I didn't catch this at all. So what was the? So they were comparing it to, um, you know, the tax on tobacco and basically talking about how that is related to like an amount of tobacco. And so they were associating it with a amount of vaping. Um, but they were first they were talking about it in milliliters. And then there was like some confusion, it seemed, about like what the milliliter was measuring. And then there was somebody called it vape juice, which is actually what it's called. And then somebody's like, well, that's a North Georgia term for you. And I'm like, no, that's that's the term. And I'm like, so clearly the people legislating on this haven't got a clue what they're legislating on. They're just legislating. We wouldn't have complained at them if they taxed it even higher. Right. So they don't have to worry about us, but they don't ever seem like they're worried about us anyways. Um <laughs> So before we get into some of the, the bigger picture of, of what this means for elections in the fall here, um, just a, a rundown of a few of the other things that have happened that happened here at the end of session. We have talked and, and you'll hear interviews, you'll hear another couple of interviews on the podcast 
uh, from people who have uh, ideas related to the administration of elections. We most recently talked to Sarah Tyndall Gazelle, who's a candidate for state house. Uh, she uh, was the Democratic Party Voter Protection Director. Um, so she had some interesting insight to look for that episode in your feeds. But the one thing that the legislature was seemingly going to do following the debacle of the primary elections on June 9th, which was not an attempt to make voting any easier, was to actually restrict local governments and the Secretary of State from mailing out absentee ballot requests um, and to basically, in effect, make vote by mail harder to access in a pandemic. That bill ultimately failed. It, it got out of committee, but it did not get a vote on the floor. What did y'all read into this failed attempt to curb the mailing of absentee ballot forms? And you know, do we think it even matters? Because Raffensperger already said he is not going to repeat the mailing out that he did uh, for the primary of those application forms, but local governments still could. But this was the effort that was organized to respond to the problems of, of June 9th's elections. What did y'all make of that? I made of it that Republicans are running scared. Yeah, I mean, it's just so, like, they, they just, they say the quiet part out loud all the time now. Trump is the person that gives everyone permission for that. And it's just, there's, there's literally no other reason to do this, but we are terrified of people voting. Like, that is the only justification for this policy that exists. And it's just so funny, because the way that you framed it is exactly right, Kyle. It's just the sense that... Um, like June 9th had a bunch of problems. There are a million things they could have proposed, you know, in this very short session of how they could have fixed that issue. And instead they proposed this, which is literally probably the only thing you could have come up with that would have made the situation worse. Because while, is it hard to count a million absentee ballots? Is it hard to count like a million absentee ballots more than you are expecting to have? Yeah, that's really hard to do. But, you know, like as far as democracy goes, having a hard time doing something administratively, if it takes an extra week to figure out who won, I don't really care because that means a ton of people got to vote and that's great. And as impatient as I am constantly refreshing the Secretary of State's website, which also sucks to read election results, I would rather wait the week and have a bunch of people vote and know who won rather than having, you know, three hour long lines where a bunch of people don't even get to vote at all because they get frustrated and, you know, don't want to get COVID, uh, waiting in line to go vote. And that, that is just a worse reality to live in. So even if Raffensperger does not use this, I want future secretary of states, you know, uh, to have the ability to do it. I want county officials to have the ability to do it because we live in unpredictable times and, you know, maybe Raffensperger will change his mind. Maybe someone else will change their mind. And as far as, you know, the goals of democracy, we should give Raffensperger credit, as I've had almost every episode on this policy, because it dramatically increased turnout in this election. I mean, it's astonishing how much it increased turnout. And that's obviously why they're so scared of it. But like they actually did a policy that helped increase voting in Georgia. And then some people tried to stop it. And I think we should be happy that for whatever reason, it failed, because it leaves the door open for 
Raffensperger and other entities to do something like this again, and I hope that they take advantage of it because it was obviously wildly successful. And I'm not just saying that because more Democrats voted than Republicans. I'm happy more Republicans voted because I think democracy works better when more people are heard from, and I think that should be a policy that is promoted, not restricted. So a few of the other things on our list that we've been paying attention to one good thing and two bad things, which is the structure of all things you get from this legislature this session. The good thing that happened at the end was the legislature did fund uh, six months of Medicaid coverage uh, for people after they give birth. Currently, you can only stay on Medicaid for two months after giving birth. Um, there has been a very robust discussion around the issue of maternal mortality in the state. Uh, the maternal mortality rankings for the state are among the worst in the country and some of the worst in the world. Um, black women are three to four times more likely to die when they become mothers. The legislature did a good thing here by allowing people who give birth to have access to Medicaid coverage. They could have done it for a year. The recommendation was to do it for a year. But the fact that they found six months to do it amidst a very tough budget, I think, is a pretty good thing. Two bad things that that happened here at the end of session. Uh, one is that the legislature at the very last minute of session, the very last thing that the state Senate did uh, was to pass a bill that would give, that would shield companies from legal liability unless they meet this standard of gross negligence related to their conduct on uh, allowing people to be at risk of infection from COVID-19. Um, this is a proposal that the corporate that corporations have been asking for. They don't want any kind of liability for their workers getting sick. Um, you know, there may be some reasonable instances where, where companies should not be held liable, but I think from what I read about this bill, the takeaway is that uh, this gives license to a lot of companies to act poorly, uh, poorly in the interests of the health of their employees or the people that shop with them. Um, Luke, what did you, real quick, what did you think of, of these liability protections for companies given at the last minute here? I, I think it should just be clear that like the standard that they, uh, have to breach in able to be held liable is gross negligence, which for non-lawyers or <laughs> lawyer adjacent people like myself, uh, that is a very, very high standard. They basically, you know, again, to not get into all of the legal debates about what gross negligence means, like a short version is they just have to kind of go out of their way <laughs> to be bad on their policy, you know, like like actively forcing someone to go to work when they have COVID or like someone says, I have COVID and they walk in and they're like, yeah, that's fine. You can stay here. Like it, it's a pretty high standard. Um, so uh, we, we could spend a whole lot more time talking about that. But it, I just think this is a clear move uh to just keep a bunch of businesses operating with no uh potential for uh protections for uh definitely not patrons and probably not uh, their employees well it plays right into kemp's whole thing about how georgia is a great state for business because not only are we not shut down but also if your business opens up you're not liable for stuff that happens unless you are grossly negligent and like you said, Luke, that's hard to prove. So this is like, this has camp written all over it. And then one final bad thing that happened, it actually isn't bad on the account of 
the legislature, the Georgia Public Defender Council's appellate office uh, was going to be the target of budget cuts along with a lot of other agencies and offices in the state. The budget cuts were, as reported, were going to result in that appellate office being disbanded. Um, The appellate office, uh, which I had not heard of, but thanks to some reporting from the AJC, um, we can note that the appellate office handles uh, a very small share of cases for people who are appealing things related to criminal convictions. Um, It is a small share of cases that they handle, but it is some of the most legally technical and complicated cases. Um, The ultimately the budget for that office was not cut. They were protected from the budget cuts. And the idea was that if their budget was not cut, the office would not be disbanded. The people who worked there would not be forced to find other jobs. Despite the fact that their budget was not cut, that office is sort of in the process of being disbanded. They are going to bring in a consultant to see how these cases could be handled differently. And 11 of the 12 people who worked in that office have found other public defender jobs, according to reporting from the AJC. You know, I thought I saw this and I thought about the fact that one of the governor's big proposals related to criminal justice, it's in a very different bucket, but it, I think, trends in the same policy direction was all of his crackdown on gang crime. That was something that did not move forward. This is something that seems to be moving forward at minimum with his knowledge. Um, and is something that after years of moving policy in the direct in the direction of being more friendly to defendants and trying to find more humane ways to treat people who may have done bad things, uh, this is trending in the other direction of giving them fewer resources and less ability to defend themselves in court. Uh, Luke, any other takeaways from you on on this move here? Yeah. This is this is very frustrating to me because the the reason why we had this office is to address the exact kinds of problems that any solution that involves getting rid of the office will create because lawyers are like any other business people and they're going to put the amount of work into a case or a project that they will get a return on. And so unless it's just like a clear miscarriage of justice where it's a high profile case where someone, you know, will get on TV a lot for tricky legal cases, which really are a lot of times when people are exonerated for, you know, being falsely accused for a crime, it's it's a tricky legal case. It takes a lot of work. It's hard to exonerate people. And so the reason why you have this appellate division is it's for those specialized cases where it's like this is not. $2,000 worth of work, which is the paying rate for private attorneys to do appellate cases uh, right now, at least to my knowledge. And so the reason why this office exists is where there are these cases that are worth an appeal, but are very, very complicated. You have people on staff who's their job, it's their job to do those really, really complicated cases. And they're specialized in doing them because they do them all the time. And so by getting rid of this office, it's, it's really the only thing it will accomplish is having crappier cases brought to appeals courts. And, and I mean, really, the the prosecutors that have to deal with those cases will be annoyed more than anything else because they're just going to have to deal with lawyers who are less prepared to address the needs that these cases bring forward. And that is just bad policy. It's frustrating. And it's inevitable if they make this move, which it appears that they are. Well, and one of the most recent 
outcomes for that office was uh, the overturning of a murder conviction because a trial judge left a defendant shackled during trial. I presume, Luke, you may know the legal implications better than me, but I presume the idea here is that it prejudiced the jury against the defendant yes. because of how he was presented in that exactly. trial. Um, so, you know, key protections for defendants that if these if these people are you know paid to work in this office and, and well-resourced, you know, can help people in, in dire situations. In the last few minutes here, you know, we've, ta- we've talked an hour about this legislative session, and there's a possibility that none of it matters. <laughs> I mean, all of it matters within the policy context of everything we talked about. Uh, but the key political environment here is the fact that Democrats have a real chance to make a run at taking the majority in the state house. Uh, the national environment for Republicans looks absolutely terrible right now, particularly driven by Donald Trump's numbers at the top of the polls. There are a lot of things that have happened both in the 2019 part of this legislative session and this year's legislative session, whether it be the abortion ban or the budget cuts or the way that this legislature has treated the administration of elections and allowing it to be a shit show that I think anger us and I think motivate us to, you know, hope that we have a different legislature next time around. How much do y'all think that this matters in terms of the possibility that Democrats could take the House and and maybe even make a run at, at some gains in the Senate? Megan, how much do you think this is going to weigh on on the outcome of elections in the fall? I think it will weigh heavily as long as those who are able to kind of package these messages do it appropriately, right? There has been so much that has happened in the past two years. You know, we're we're talking about things that happened at the beginning of this two-year session um, that really should be impactful. And I think that especially with everything that's going on with COVID, I think a lot of people's memories are short. I think also people are focusing on things that um, need to be focused on for their personal lives and maybe aren't as focused on something that happened a year ago. Um, So I think that as long as we are able to remind people what is at stake, I think that there's a really good chance that we can get people motivated on both sides of the aisle to make some changes and to really hold government to account. Now, what I cannot account for and this is like my hesitation for not taking a stronger stance on my answer to this question, is the environment that Trump has created is so volatile and so hard to predict related to what is going to rile up his base and those adjacent to his base that I worry a bit about that. And I really hope that between now and November, we figure out how to handle those sorts of issues. I I agree mostly with what Megan said. I think what this session has done is for anyone who's frustrated with politics nationally, the Republicans in our current leadership have done nothing to dissuade people of those feelings towards them. Uh, you know, I don't think there will be that many voters who uh, will you know vote out their state house rep based off of how they voted on this budget. Uh, alone, you know, it wouldn't be like, oh, I was going to vote for him. But I think it just increases the already existing frustration with the 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 government that we have uh, both nationally and in Georgia. And I think for people uh, who were looking for a reason to 
to continue supporting Republicans uh, that have been just, you know, just a swag of that recently. I think this just confirms that the problems that exist in Washington are very present in Georgia. And so I, I, I think there will be plenty of campaigns. I'm working on one uh, that will use these votes against them and to, you know, to make an argument about why uh, Georgia needs new leadership. Uh, and I think um, it will it will be interesting to see what happens. I think this definitely sets the stage for the state house being very competitive. The state Senate um, is a much harder case. Uh, maybe maybe it'll happen, but I, I doubt that. Um, I think the the real action will be the Ossoff race, the Biden race, and depending on how it shapes up, the you know Loeffler, Collins, Warnock, Lieberman race. Uh, that one still seems to be mostly between Collins and, and uh, Waffler at the moment. Um, and I, I think what we're going to see is if the national races uh, get heavily invested in, then I think there's there's going to be some potential coattails that will push some Democrats over the, the finish line, potentially. I think that there is a message to be had that Failures of leadership at the federal and the state level have had implications beyond just the immediate experience related to COVID. I mean, the failure to get COVID under control is part of what contributes to slashing a billion dollars in education funding. And the fear of Republicans who time and time again have not put forward policy ideas that actually solve the problems that are on the table, but instead tried to dodge them, sort of explains their fear of accountability at the ballot box and the reason that they are working so hard to make it harder to vote. I think you can sort of string together a narrative about a lot of these things and and sum it up as a failure of leadership and an inability for them to feel accountable to people. And so it gives you something to say that taps into and, and is layered on top of frustration with Washington and the competitive political environment that's going to happen in Georgia this fall. You know, it, it, it puts a message behind all of that investment that's coming. And so that, to me, I think, adds to the opportunity that's here for Democrats. There will be money, there will be enthusiasm, and they need to talk about the problems that are on the table and let people know how they can make change happen. Oh, but so many things have gone wrong. <laughs> it's just hard to be optimistic about anything. All righty. Well, we are going to leave that there. Uh, so we, uh, like a lot of Georgia politics, will turn our attention to forthcoming elections. We'll be taking a look and talking to candidates running for state house in the fall. We'll be talking about a lot of these issues, diving in deeper on what they mean for people and how uh, if there was different leadership and different decisions made, how how things could have gone differently. That's going to be a facet of our coverage as we head to the election in the fall. Uh, but for now, we are going to let you go today. So Luke and Megan, thank you as always for joining the podcast. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.